Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors. Liquidware, the innovator in adaptive workspace management solutions. And also by PolicyPack Software, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lockdown applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And also by Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these great sponsors to thank. And now for some news. This week, Microsoft unveiled Windows 365. You may recall last week and on a couple of the other previous episodes of this podcast, I talked about a potential cloud PC offering and the fact that it was anticipated that it would be revealed this week. Well, it certainly was. As anticipated, this Windows 365 has been designed to provide a monthly pricing structure that includes all license entitlements, usage, and compute. This is very important because current offerings like Azure Virtual Desktop or just pretty much anything running a virtual machine within Azure can be a little erratic in terms of pricing since your compute can fluctuate. It's very difficult to know what it is you're going to end up owing at the end of the month or spending by the end of the month. With Windows 365, you just pay the same flat fee per user each month. Something I'm not sure of is whether or not a subscription can be paused and then picked back up or not. Like for example, if one of my employees needs to take a long-term leave, how do you handle that for the desktop subscription? Do you still pay for a desktop that no one is using? That's a little unclear and I guess more will be revealed as the offering gets launched. Unfortunately, they did not reveal that information or really much about the pricing either. And they say that that will all be revealed on August 2nd when Cloud PC and Windows 365 is launched. Having said that, The Verge reported on a screenshot shown during the demos that seems to show at least one desktop configuration and its price. It was a business desktop with two CPUs, four gigs of memory, and 128 gig of storage and it showed as $31 per user per month, which that's a pretty basic desktop and $31 per user per month is a little on the pricey side in my opinion. Now it was pointed out that this is not the cheapest possible option and you could see that on the screenshot even. As you could see, there's an option to go down to one CPU, two gigs of memory, and even smaller storage, which that would not be a very performant desktop. Microsoft revealed some of the desktop configurations available for business customers who have 300 or less users and enterprise customers with larger workforces. The specs range from one CPU, two gigs of memory, and 64 gigs storage, which they say could work for frontline workers, call centers, education, training, CRM access, and allow access to Office Lite, which is the web-based Office 365, the Microsoft Edge browser, OneDrive, and lightweight line of business apps like call center web apps and also you get Windows Defender support. So very, very much a task worker. I don't know if I'd even be confident with a desktop of that spec for a task worker, but that option is available. The high end at the moment at least seems to be eight CPUs, 
32 gigs of memory and 512 gig storage. They say that could be suitable for software developers, engineers, content creators, and design and engineering workstations. That could include Microsoft 365 apps, Microsoft Teams, Outlook, Access, OneDrive, Adobe Reader, Edge, Power BI, Visual Studio Code, line of business apps, plus you also get the Windows Defender support. And even on the high end, I mean, they say design and engineering workstations and content creators. I don't know if I'd be giving that kind of desktop to those types of workers either. They didn't mention any GPU support, so that could limit some of those workers depending on the apps and the workflows that they use day to day. Personally, I think a beefy desktop that can be configured for remote access, like a physical desktop, could be a better option for some of those outliers. Now for just general power users who are not necessarily using graphic intensive applications, certainly that high spec would definitely work for them. During the launch event, they did talk about being able to resize the desktops as well as the potential to have desktops resize automatically, plus the possibility to give users an option to resize the desktop themselves, which obviously you might only want to give that to executives or certain people because that's going to change the billing for the month too. Might be better to set it and then let them come to you and ask to get the desktop resized rather than allowing to automatically do it or to actually allow users to self-service and do it. It's not just this flat pricing model that makes this different to Azure Virtual Desktop. The cloud PC is purely one-to-one, so there's not gonna be a multi-session Windows 10 option available by the looks of things. One good or bad thing with the one-to-one approach is that it's more like a traditional physical desktop that you give to a user. It really is like a personal computer. It is persistent and you don't need profile management. Scott Manchester from Microsoft did a brief demo showing the provisioning of these cloud PCs using Microsoft Endpoint Manager, showing that you could select to build the desktop with a set spec and using an image available in the Azure gallery, or you could select to use a custom image. You can also use MEM for patching your desktops, for deploying applications, setting policies, and more. So this is obviously a big mental shift for anyone who's used Azure Virtual Desktop. As the name suggests, it's more like managing a regular PC. You build it, and then it's a persistent desktop that you'll need to manage from that point on. Rather than with a non-persistent tearaway pool desktop, you make a change to an image that's centrally managed, and then just kind of tear away or recompose those desktops at log off or at a set interval or schedule. So kind of different if you're used to maybe Citrix or VMware Horizon, where you recompose desktops or PVS just reboot with the new VDisk or new version attached or MCS with Snap. It's a very different way of thinking. It's more like the traditional physical PC. The cloud PC should be pretty resilient since it's running on a cloud infrastructure and has been built with a zero trust approach. Now that zero trust approach is kind of from an architecture or infrastructure design standpoint, doesn't necessarily mean that the desktop itself is gonna be bulletproof once you put users on there. I would recommend you use something like PolicyPack Least Privilege Manager to secure the actual OS and the desktop itself. And then you can be pretty happy because you'll have a secure desktop plus that zero trust for the infrastructure and the intertwined dependencies. The desktop should also be super performant. 
Scott's video showed the simple fact that Microsoft's data centers have a really serious high-speed network. So while you may be rocking a 40 megabit per second connection at home, which is fine for connecting and using cloud PC and having a good experience, once you're on the cloud PC itself, your desktop connection could be above 10 gigabits per second download speed. Though honestly, in Azure Virtual Desktop, which should be running in the same data centers, I have not achieved that download speed in Azure yet. So maybe that will depend on the region, I'm not sure. The fact that this is persistent means it should perform like a regular desktop and not be that complicated. They have clients on everything but Linux so far, but they say that is coming. For enterprise customers, they will require a full Active Directory domain that is Azure AD Hybrid Join enabled. For business, they need Azure Active Directory. In a Microsoft Mechanics video, Scott talked about the scenario of what about those people who need to connect to a share on their corporate network? And he went through the virtual network configuration to allow the Azure tenant to connect through to the corporate network. And I saw that the awesome Neil McLaughlin shared a really great YouTube video that he posted very quickly after the announcement that goes through some more details on this as well. So definitely check that out and I'll share a link to that with this episode, which is episode 185 on 5bytespodcast.com. But to me, the coolest announcement is the Azure Active Directory join feature. The Azure Active Directory domain services to me is needlessly complicated and expensive. I personally don't really like having a VPN running in my home lab for Azure. So this is what I have in my head. So I don't work for Microsoft. I'm definitely not designing the product and it's not necessarily the best way to do things, but this is just kind of what I have in my head. So I would like to use Azure Active Directory, have my virtual desktops provision with the latest Windows 10 image in the Azure gallery and automatically join my Azure AD domain. Then on startup, I'd have it install a couple of my agents on there. So I'm not putting those in the image, but on startup, it's configured once the device comes up, a couple of my agents will install on it. And also MEM will apply some policies that I set. Now I could use MEM for patching, but I think I'd personally prefer the option to just tear down the desktop each month and rebuild it. But that could depend on the data that's being stored on the desktop. If I could get my workflows to fit using OneDrive, Teams files, and SharePoint Online so that no data is stored on the cloud PC, then that would be possible for me. I'd also need to do away with dependencies on archaic technology like map network drives so that I could tear away the need for that VPN connection, which would require me to pay for that resource consumption outside of the flat for just the desktop. And I kind of like the approach of tearing away the desktop each month and just having a rebuild or reprovision with the latest gallery in the image that should include that month's patches because it will be like a brand new build each month and a refreshed desktop. So any rot that might creep into the desktop is also wiped away and it's a clean slate. But that's not necessarily a hard requirement. It's just something that I would like. It doesn't sound like that's what they expect you to do with this cloud PC offering. I think it sounds like you'd manage it just like a physical PC and you wouldn't need to rebuild it regularly. You would just manage the patches with MEM each month, which 
is okay. I mean, people are used to that. Administrators all over the world are patching PCs that way. So at least it's familiar to people and it should be easy to do for most. But for me, I mean, even though you're just paying a flat price, I mean, you could just leave the desktop powered on all the time and just connect to it quickly uh, whenever you like, I guess. But for me, I'd prefer to shut down my VMs at the end of each day to help Mother Earth with less power consumption. I don't know if they mentioned that. I didn't hear it mentioned whether the desktop would power itself down after a certain idle time. I would like to think that it does and they're looking at the climate impact from all this. Personally, I also would not like to deploy too many applications using uh, MEM. I prefer to have applications dynamically delivered. That might be possible to do with MSIX app attach, but I'm not that convinced yet on MSIX. The compatibility rate's not that great. I've posted a lot of blogs and I've mentioned cloud paging quite a bit. And I've used the cloud paging content delivery network, which is their cloud hosted subscription product. So if I could use that for delivering my applications, then I wouldn't need to do any image updates. I wouldn't really need to deploy anything using MEM to the desktop when it comes up. The users could just launch the applications via the content delivery network. Anyways, that's my technical rant over. Uh, I'm gonna post a blog post on this topic, which I'll share with this episode, which again is episode 185. You'll find that on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links. And before I get away from this story, I noticed that the Wall Street Journal the BBC, and many other mainstream news outlets picked up on this story about Windows 365, though some of the articles were kind of confusing to me at least, some focusing more on the angle of allowing you to consume Windows apps on Macs, iPads, and Android devices, which that in and of itself isn't exactly earth-shattering. You can already do that with a lot of different services. I think some of them maybe missed the point a little, but it's still cool to see some excitement in the wider mainstream media too. In other news, unfortunately there's more bad news for SolarWinds this week. Ars Technica reports that Microsoft discovered a zero day under active attack, but reportedly the attack is with very limited scope at the moment. Only SolarWinds serve you managed file transfer and serve you secure FTP and by extension the serve you gateway, a component of those two products are affected by this vulnerability. It allows attackers to remotely execute malicious code on vulnerable systems. An attacker can gain privileged access to exploited machines hosting ServeView products and could then install programs, view, change, or delete data or run programs on the affected system. The vulnerability exists in the latest ServeView version 15.2.3 Hotfix 1 that was released just on May 5th, plus all prior versions. SolarWinds have issued a hotfix to mitigate the attacks while the company works on a more permanent solution. They've also said that this is in no way related to the previous supply chain hack, and to be fair to them without knowing too much, it sounds like this one is much more limited in its scope. Microsoft found it, shared it, and they have got at least a hotfix out pretty quickly. So if you use those products, definitely patch. Speaking of patching, it's that time of month again, another patch Tuesday just passed. This was a big one with 116 security bugs fixed. Although I saw some other outlets saying it was 117, so I think it was 116 though. According to Krebs on security, at least four of the vulnerabilities are under active attack. And of the patches released, 13 are said to be for critical vulnerabilities and 103 for important. 
This month's patches does contain the Print Nightmare patch that was released last week and I covered on last week's episode of the podcast. But also there are patches for CVE-2021-34448, which is a critical remote code execution vulnerability in the scripting engine built into every supported version of Windows. Also, CVE-2021-33771 and 31979 are for elevation of privilege flaws in the Windows kernel. And those are being actively exploited too. There was also a Windows Hello bypass vulnerability patched, which sounds like a pretty worrying one too, basically allowing that quick, easy, seamless authentication in. These aren't the only patches. Like I said, there's a lot of patches, covers a wide range of products, including things like Microsoft Exchange. So check that out and I'll share a link for more information to all of those with this episode. Of course, all major enterprise software vendors are in the same type of Patch Tuesday cadence, and Citrix have patched a vulnerability with Citrix virtual apps and desktop that if exploited, could allow a user of a Windows VDA that has either Citrix profile management or Citrix profile management WMI plugin installed to escalate their privilege level on that VDA to system context. This vulnerability is CVE-2021-22928, and it affects CVAD-2106 and earlier, CVAD-1912, CU3 and earlier, as well as Zen App and Zen Desktop 715 LTSR CU7 and earlier. They say that CVAD-2106 is only affected when Citrix Profile Management is installed on a VDA, as Citrix Profile Management WMI plugin is not affected in that version. Citrix have released hotfixes to address these vulnerabilities, and I'll share a link again with this episode. This week it was announced that Microsoft is buying RiskIQ, a San Francisco-based company who makes cloud software for detecting security threats, helping clients understand where and how they can be attacked on complex webs of corporate networks and devices. The deal is reported to be for about $500 million, but that's from an anonymous source according to Bloomberg.com. RiskIQ have previously received about $83 million in funding. The report suggests Microsoft has been acquiring other security vendors too, and this is in an effort to shore up their security portfolio for Azure. Well, the cat is officially out of the bag. Citrix posted an article revealing PVS on Azure is now in preview. Citrix PVS on Azure behaves much the same as traditional PVS deployments on-prem with the ability to stream hundreds or thousands of Azure virtual machines from a single shared vDisk image. They say that PVS not only saves storage costs, but dramatically reduces admin overhead, patching, and rollback capabilities in deployments of all sizes. They also announced Citrix Image Portability Service is also in preview, which reads like they are gearing some of the Citrix app layering tech toward lifting and shifting on-prem images to the cloud which honestly to me makes a lot of sense. App layering has felt a little out of touch so far. It could be pretty slow to use in a very reactive environment and not suitable, but if it could be molded in such a way that it is a mechanism for simply taking an image that runs maybe on Hyper-V and ports it to vSphere on-prem, or more importantly, maybe from an on-prem vSphere up into Azure or another cloud, then it's gonna be a pretty great feature and use case. Personally, I'm really excited to see Citrix PVS on Azure. I believe it's not going to be using Pixie. 
it's going to be using the BDM for streaming instead, which I think makes a lot of sense. Mozilla have released Firefox version 90. With this release on Windows, updates can now be applied in the background while Firefox is not running. Firefox for Windows now offers a new page that's about colon third dash party to help identify compatibility issues caused by some of your third party applications. Exceptions to the HTTPS only mode can be managed now in about colon preferences, hashtag privacy. Print to PDF now produces working hyperlinks. And version two of Firefox's smart block feature will further improve private browsing. A few weeks ago, U.S. President Joe Biden was asked about hitting back against ransomware gangs and suggested that he intended to. Politico.com reported this week that they are offering rewards as high as $10 million for help identifying perpetrators. That's the U.S. government offering that, not Politico. It has also been suggested that they may launch their own disruptive cyber attacks on hacker gangs as well as developing partnerships with businesses to speed up the sharing of information about ransomware infections. They intend to work with the likes of insurance companies and partners with cybersecurity experts to enable some of that information sharing. It was also reported that they are already promoting digital resilience among critical infrastructure companies and working to halt ransom payments made through cryptocurrency platforms and coordinating activities with their U.S. allies. The story on this caught my eye due to how those in the cybersecurity community were responding to it on Twitter. It was overwhelmingly positive, and it seems most believe a counterattack like this to these gangs is the best way forward. I think this approach is receiving support because, as I covered on previous episodes of the podcast, it is impossible to extradite these cyber gangs from some of the countries they're based out of. And on that topic, there was a fascinating story in Technology Review this week that gave a deep dive into global efforts to tackle some of the most notorious cyber gangs, including details of a raid that went badly when the FBI worked with Ukrainian and Russian officials to arrest some of the more prominent gang members, only to find, due to corruption within the ranks, the criminals were just released soon afterwards and went right back to hacking again. It does detail more about the kind of cooperation that is currently ongoing, so hopefully something changes, but it could be a case of don't hold your breath. And now some quick hits to wrap up the news. Seven new connectors have been published for Microsoft Power Automate, including one for Amazon S3. They say it provides connectivity to Amazon S3 API, enabling processes to interface with Amazon S3 to store objects and build applications that require internet storage. There's also some other AWS-related connectors, plus much more. A new version of FS Logics has been released, with various updates made to improve login. They fixed an issue where users could fail to log in if a VHD network location was unavailable. You're now able to increase the size of an existing VHDX by updating the size in MB setting. The refresh user policy setting can now be managed by a group policy. They fixed an issue where FSLogix could deadlock and prevent user connections, plus more. For a full list, I'll share a link with this episode. A quick update on the HSE ransomware attack, which is the healthcare system in Ireland that got attacked back in May. It was reported that the Irish Army deployed 850 personnel to 48 different HSE sites. 
They've said that now 3,933 out of the total 4,891 servers have been restored. 69,000 devices out of 83,000 have been cleaned. As is the case with recoveries from ransomware attacks pretty much anywhere, it said that it's a long haul, even with the decryption key. The Windows 11 Insider Preview has received its first update, which includes a new entertainment widget available. There's new context menus and other right-click menus that have been updated to the new acrylic material, that kind of glassy look and feel. They said that they're testing the usability of a split button for making new folders and files in File Explorer. And there's also taskbar previews when you mouse over open apps on the taskbar. They've been updated to reflect the new visual design of Windows 11. Interestingly, this week during Inspire, it was announced that Japanese company NEC will apparently be moving their entire 110,000 strong workforce to Azure Virtual Desktop. The awesome Evergreen module by Aaron Parker has been updated to now include apps like Camtasia, Snagit, Postman, Tableau Reader, Tableau Desktop, and more. And the equally awesome Dan Goff has updated his Nevergreen module to include some great tools like AppVentix, AppVManage, TMEdit, and more. Plus, there's been some fixes made too. So check that out. And now, a hot job. ControlUp are looking for a professional services engineer based in Europe. Responsibilities include professionally representing ControlUp values at all time, maintaining current knowledge of the ControlUp product portfolio, being a trusted advisor to both colleagues and customers, help customers to succeed by solving their challenging technical problems from design through to production operations, provide regular transfer of information presentations to customers, and kind of the boilerplate for a professional services engineer. They do say that travel to customers is expected at least 25%. Requirements include 10 plus years of experience in IT, five plus years of customer facing professional services or VDI administration, fluent speaking and writing in English, strong VMware or Citrix experience, strong Windows desktop OS admin experience, proven technical background, positive attitude and being very customer centric. Plus there's some nice to haves like the MCSE, maybe CTP, VCP, and those kinds of awards certifications. And now this episode, scripts, tricks, and tips. James Kinden had a blog post on how to work with Azure Shared Image Gallery when using Citrix MCS, which is a great idea for all the reasons why I feel I would prefer to do that with Azure Virtual Desktop and Cloud PC that I mentioned earlier. I really think that's a great way to streamline things. I know that it's easier said than done because there's these archaic technologies being depended on and maybe some applications that it makes more sense to put into an image, but it is an achievable future and it's something that I'd like to work toward. And if you use Citrix MCS, this could be a great starting point and just kind of getting your toes wet with this one. And finally, once again this week, Sarah Lean, the techie lass, had a great blog post on exporting a list of your apps from Windows Package Manager, or WinGet as you may know it, and then just taking the resulting exported JSON and importing it in via WinGet elsewhere. So 
if all your apps are installed with WinGet on one machine, you can export that list and then just move to another machine that doesn't have any apps installed on it and just quickly import and install those applications with a single WinGet command. Sounds awesome. Well, that's it for another episode of the podcast. Next week on Friday the 23rd, I'm going to be hosting the first ever cloud paging user group. If you're not familiar with cloud paging and you'd like to learn more, you could sign up. If you're already familiar with it and use the product and want to share your insight with us, definitely come along. And if you just want to know a really awesome, probably the best way to deliver Windows applications, come along. It's got an unbelievably high compatibility rate. If you've struggled with things like AppV in the past or uh, different virtualization technologies that had limitations, this is completely different and you can learn about it more at the user group and I'll share a link to that with this episode too. Thanks so much, everyone.